Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 24. But the thing you must understand at the beginning of 1 Samuel is that there was no future for Israel. When we come to verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, it had been some 200 years since the Israelites had come into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. The period of time called that of the Judges. Which means that when Samuel opens, it had been some 200 years since the events of Joshua chapter 24. Would you turn to Joshua chapter 24? It's to the left from where you are there in 1 Samuel, past Ruth, past Judges, then comes Joshua. Chapter 24 is the end of the book of Joshua. We have a lot of context to establish this morning. The primary goal of my sermon this morning is to make sense of where we are when we come to Samuel. And you're in Joshua 24, and we're going to read a lot of it. I had this whole introduction written to my sermon that covered the history, the summarized events that brought us into Samuel. I kind of liked it. But yesterday, as I was reviewing it, I realized, no, what you need to do is read the texts. So here we go. Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Do you know Shechem? Why Shechem? It's, it's from Genesis 12 to start with, where Abram comes to the land of Canaan, comes to the land of Canaan with Sarai and Lot, and what's the first place that's mentioned that they come to? Shechem. And the Lord says there to Abram in Genesis 12, to your offspring I will give this land Got it? They're in Shechem. It's north of Bethel and Shiloh. It's along the road from Jerusalem to the northern districts. And Joshua gathers the tribes there. The twelve tribes. And he summons the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And he reviews their history. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness 
between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, verse 14, therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua says. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord. For he is our God. And so they committed themselves. But it wasn't to be. And Joshua knew it wasn't to be. The conquest would not be completed. The people would not be faithful. The book after Joshua is Judges. Turn over the page, if you would, to Judges chapter 2. A little bit of Old Testament survey here for a while. Judges chapter 2. There's this two-part introduction to the book of Judges, if you know it. We'll just jump right in at the second part, where the narrative continues from Joshua here in chapter 2, verse 6. So we're picking up in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. 
And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And then here's verse 11 of Judges 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then here comes the summary of the next 200 odd years. Ready? Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have obeyed my voice, have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. That's going to be very important in Samuel. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And you know it's coming. It's like a drumbeat through Judges, chapter 3, verse 7. It begins, chapter 3, verse 7, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes on, chapter 3, verse 12, and the people did, uh, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, Verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then comes Gideon. Nothing's changed. Gideon dies, chapter 10, verse 6, all the way over to 10, verse 6. 
The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It doesn't stop. Chapter 13, verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you get Samson. And there's some hope in the Samson section of Judges. Right? Hebrews 11 includes him as a hero of the faith, but nothing's changed with the people. And you, you finish the, the Samson section of the book of Judges, and you come eventually then to Judges 17. Turn to Judges 17. Where then do the events of Judges chapters 17 to 21, the rest of the book, where do the events of this take place? Look at 17 verse 1. We're not going into the details, don't worry, but note the location. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. The hill country of Ephraim. Hang on to that. The bottom falls out in Judges chapter 17 to 21, if it hadn't already. It's utter religious and moral deterioration. Most of chapter 17 to 21 take place in the hill country of Ephraim. And what you have is a collection of stories that essentially portray Levites. Those of the tribe of Levi, those whom were supposed from whom were to come those set apart for priestly service to the Lord. And the Levites are the ones at the end of Judges guiding the tribes of Israel into sin. And about the most sordid and gruesome and tragic content of the Bible is in Judges 17 to 21. Don't read it late at night. My understanding, based on what I've read, is that there are some passages in this part of Judges which are not permitted to be read in the synagogue even today. So heinous are they. And it's all summed up in the final verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. I'll spare you the details. Just look at what it says in verse 25 of chapter 21 of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just let that note sound for a moment, would you? It's the same thing exactly as is said in Judges 17, verse 6. So the, this section, Judges 17 to 21, is bookended by this. Same sentences. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel's apostasy had reached the depths. And that's where we are. That's where we are. There was no future for Israel when we come to verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. 
Now, you may know, or you may not know, but it's worth knowing that the order of the books of the Old Testament in your English Bible isn't based on the order of the books of the Hebrew Bible. Now, much of it's the same, but not all of it. Did you know that? The English Bible uses the order of the books that's found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint has Ruth after Judges, which makes sense chronologically. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth doesn't follow Judges. Samuel follows Judges. In fact, Samuel's part of what's called the former prophets, which in the Hebrew Bible is just one big block, one continuous narrative from Joshua to Judges to Samuel to Kings. So you turn the page from the end of Judges in the Hebrew Bible, and what do you read? You read 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. And actually, in Hebrew, there's no 1 and 2 Samuel either. It's just Samuel... It was divided in the Greek translation into first and second, but it's not. It's just Samuel. The first verse. There was a certain man. There was a certain man. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was a certain man. A certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim. <laughs> and things begin to change. Welcome to Samuel, dear friends. We begin this morning what I anticipate will be, hold your breath, almost exactly a one-year study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. <laughs> Not that every Sunday for a year will be in 1st and 2nd Samuel. I don't mean that. We'll break on occasion. We'll shift to other things in Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter and, and a few other dates. But it will be, I think, approximately the beginning of June next year when we come to 2nd Samuel chapter 24. The end of Samuel. And what will we have seen? Well, surely there'll be a great deal I don't know about yet. Who can say what the Lord will do in your life and in our life together as a church in and through the study of these books? I don't know that. I trust there'll be much that you learn and much that the Spirit of God will do in your life in the course of this study. There's much I'm learning preparing this series for preaching. But I'll show you my cards just a little bit on this first Sunday. When we come... Lord willing, approximately one year from now to 2 Samuel chapter 24, I hope there's at least one point, there'll be a lot of things, but I hope there's at least one point that will have become clear, and it's this, that for ancient Israel, and for the church today, and for you and me, and it turns out for the whole world, there is only one faithful king. And that king is the Lord. That king 
is the Lord. Many of you know the contents of First and Second Samuel. These are long books with a lot in them. And they sketch this radical change in Israel from tribal chaos to the monarchy. And perhaps the simplest way to think of this is in terms of the three main characters that come in this book of Samuel, first and second together. These are also the three main leaders of Israel in the time span of this book. First, of course, is Samuel, the namesake of the book, whose story we begin this morning or more next week. And then Saul, the first king of Israel, who will first appear in chapter 9 and whose death occurs at the end of 1 Samuel and all is not well when Saul is king. And then David, Israel's second king, who will enter the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16 but won't become king until the early chapters of 2 Samuel. And you know these books, you know that it's David, of course it's David, who takes center stage as Israel's greatest king. But let me say this now. By the end of 2 Samuel, you'll be disappointed in David. By the end of 2 Samuel, you'll be disappointed in David. You will be hopeful for the future of God's kingdom, yes. But will you be confident in the ability of the likes of David to bring that kingdom about? Not at all. Because Samuel, the book of Samuel, keeps our eyes and our hearts focused on a future horizon, looking not just to David, but to great David's greater son to him who will sit on the throne forever, whose kingdom will have no end. For as we'll see in the months ahead, God's answer to the crisis facing Israel when we come to the beginning of 1 Samuel isn't ultimately David. It's Jesus. Because the crisis facing Israel isn't limited to Israel. The promise to Abraham is that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It turns out God has an answer, not just for the hearts of Israel, not just for the kingdom of Israel, but for the whole world. And for each of us individually. And I think there's probably no book more important in the Old Testament for understanding Jesus than Samuel. Because our categories come from this book. Jesus' categories came from this book. Son of God, Son of David, Messiah, Kingdom, Kingdom of God. All these concepts and more, all so central to Jesus' life and ministry and eternal promises, they all take their meaning from this book. So I pray you're going to understand the whole Bible better through understanding Samuel. But it won't be easy. Samuel isn't easy. There'll be loads of stuff to sort through, and some of it gets pretty dark. But hang in there. And please pray for me. And please pray for the others who will preach these sermons, and pray for us as a church, and pray for yourself 
that will all know and love the king. The hero of the book of Samuel isn't David. It's Yahweh. Now, my goal here in the minutes that don't even remain at this point is only to try and set the scene of chapter 1. I had verses 1 to 24 read. We're not doing it. We'll come back and we're going to cover basically all of chapter 1 through to, to, to verse 10 of chapter 2 next week because it's really all one unit and we'll say a lot more about the text that was read this morning because it's a wonderful, I mean, it's just an amazing story and we have to move through it. But I do want to say just a few extra things now coming from the beginning of this text. This is going to be a little longer than average, but I said a minute ago that there are three main characters in this book. Samuel, Saul, David. And it's Samuel's story we start with, isn't it? But that doesn't mean we start with Samuel. Look again now at verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, <laughs> an Ephrathite. Now there's no reason that you should know anything about Ramathim Zophim. It's also just called Rama. It's where Samuel will be born later in the chapter. It was a relatively obscure town in the hill country of Ephraim. But living in that town was a certain man. And after the corruption and the chaos and the violence that was happening in the hill country of Ephraim at the end of Judges, Maybe we find ourselves encouraged when we read in verse 3 how this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It seems normal and is. But the Lord's up to something. And the narrator's cluing us in if we can see it. Already in verse 1, we're given four generations of ancestry for Elkanah. That in itself is unusual outside of genealogical lists in the Bible. Why this four levels? Why this somewhat dramatic introduction? What are we to understand about who Elkanah is? Well, there is another place where this Elkanah shows up. Now, Elkanah was actually a pretty popular name in ancient Israel, kind of like John or something. It means roughly, God creates. But I want you to have a quick look at the other place where we see this same Elkanah over in 1 Chronicles. Would you turn there? To the right now, to the right of 1 Samuel. You move through 2 Samuel. You move through Kings 1 and 2. And then you come to Chronicles. And you come to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, if you would. Chapter 6 and go right to verse 33. We're not going to talk about Chronicles at all. I just want you to go right to verse 33. What you're in the middle of is a genealogy. And we're about to see a chain that goes 15 generations further than the chain that we get in 1 Samuel related to Elkanah. And we'll notice in a minute where that chain ends. But start at the very end of verse 33 of 1 Chronicles 6. See the very last name in verse 33? Samuel. That's our Samuel. 
who's not yet been born in 1 Samuel. And it says, Samuel, son of Elkanah. That's our Elkanah. Son of Jeroham, son of Eliel, son of Toa, son of Zuf. See it? Now, I know that there are differences in the three names between Elkanah and Zuf, between 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles 6. There's reasons I can't deal with that now. But there's Zuf. And then you have to go through many other names until you get to verse 38, 1 Chronicles 6, where we pick it up with son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, son of Israel. Elkanah is a Levite. That means Samuel is a Levite. Why is the genealogy of Elkanah significant? I think it's so we're prepared for the fact that Samuel comes from a priestly family. Elkanah and Samuel are Levites from the hill country of Ephraim, the same as in the end of the book of Judges. But this isn't the end of the book of Judges anymore. Something's different. And Samuel, we'll find out soon enough, will live in Shiloh serving the Lord at the tabernacle. His mother, Hannah, vows this faithful vow to commit Samuel to the Lord in the context of the tabernacle. How could she do that? She could do that because he's a Levite. She can send him to serve in the tabernacle as a Levite. And what a contrast this faithful Levite will be next to Eli and his worthless sons and all that they represent from the history of Israel. You see, the Lord's up to something. So there's that. And then there's one remaining detail in verse 1 of our text. See it at the end of the verse? After these four generations are named, there's one further description of Elkanah that's mysteriously provided here. He is, the ESV text says, an Ephrathite. You see that? Now, some of you are going to come ask me afterwards because your translation says Ephraimite, not Ephrathite. And it gets pretty technical, but the ESV has it right, I'm convinced. It should be Ephrathite. He's not saying he's part of the tribe of Ephraim. We've seen in Chronicles how he's part of the tribe of Levi. This is an Ephrathite. Does that name ring any bells for you? Maybe not. Ephrathite comes from Ephrathah. To say someone is an Ephrathite is to say they have family connections at some point going back to Ephrathah. And another name for Ephrathah in the Bible is Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. It seems Elkanah, though now living in Ramathiam, was a Levite connected through his family to Bethlehem, which is, well, so what? So what? What's Bethlehem? Bethlehem Ephrathah wasn't a famous place 
at the time of 1 Samuel. Oh, but it would be. It would be even in the course of this book where we meet another Ephrathite who will make Bethlehem famous named David. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 12 says David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I think by now you've picked up where this is going. That some three centuries later, God through the prophet Micah would prophesy that the Messiah would also be born in Ephrathite Bethlehem. Matthew 2 verse 6 cites it, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, citing Micah chapter 5 verse 2, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. This was Elkanah's heritage. You see, what's the Lord up to? Elkanah didn't know any of this. But in the sovereign flow of history, the pieces come together. We're in this time of total chaos and crisis. And Samuel starts with what at first seems like a nobody. This unheard of certain man, a Levite with connections to an obscure town called Bethlehem. And then beginning in verse 2, well, we're not even focused on him anymore. We're focused on Hannah. He had two wives, verse 2 says. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. She bore no children, so Elkanah married Penina, who did have children, and who wasn't shy about making a point of it, right? And we'll say more about that next week. But leaving this issue of having two wives aside for a second, my question at this juncture once again is, what's the Lord up to? Why are we focused now on this one woman in Israel who happens to be the barren wife of this one man who has these connections to Levi and Ephrath? Why? Well, maybe I could ask it this way. Haven't we been here before? <laughs> Genesis chapter 11 Sarah was barren. She had no child. But God promised Abraham that she would have one, and she bore Isaac, and Isaac became the bearer of the great promise of God to bring blessings to the nations of the earth. In Genesis 25, Rebekah was barren, but Isaac prayed for her, and she conceived and bore Esau and Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the Israelite nation. Genesis 29, Jacob's wife Rachel was barren. But God listened to her and opened her womb, and she bore Joseph, through whom God saved many lives, including his own people. And even from more recently in Judges 13, a woman who was barren and had no children is visited by an angel and promised a son and gives birth to Samson, who delivers Israel from the Philistines in that time and ruled Israel for 20 years. Do you think there might be a pattern? 
Do you have a sense of where we are now? In those days, in those days when there was no king in Israel, when all is religious and moral chaos, where's the Lord going to be at work? Well, there's a certain man, you see. An obscure Levite man from an obscure town with connections to an obscure place named Bethlehem who's married to an obscure barren woman who's weeping and praying at Shiloh. And it's this obscure woman, faithful Hannah, who prays. And it's her faithful prayer that the Lord uses to be the turning point of history. Because it's time for the Lord to act. And that's where we'll pick this up next week. But already here in 1 Samuel, maybe your mind has gone here, just two verses in. How could we not end in talking about these patterns by recognizing that there would come another day when there was yet another barren woman whose name was Elizabeth and whose husband was Zechariah and the Lord would hear his prayer too and Elizabeth would bear a son named John and he would make straight the paths of the king of the Lord of the son of David who would be born to an obscure virgin girl named Mary in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Because ultimately, that's what the Lord's up to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.